Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the deed, I thought the deed, I'm sorry, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not been born, who has not yet been, and who has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Again I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all that the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Awesome. Sweetheart, I'm talking to my wife right now. Why don't you come grab this and uh, while you figure out how to restart it. So, thank you so much. We're, we're playing some audible here. So, <laughs> how's everybody doing? All right, I already asked you that. Good. I'm Josiah. I'm one of the pastors on staff. It's my joy to be able to bring God's word uh, this morning for us. Don't give me that face, David. I'm like, come on, man. I'm trying my best up here, man. Um, fake it till we make it, as someone said. Um, in all honesty, though, it is really my pleasure to, to bring God's word uh, for us this morning. And uh, we've, we've prayed it, we've sang it, uh, we prayed that God's word would weigh heavy on our hearts, that we would sit under the authority of God's word. We've declared that God's word is alive and well and that his word never fails. And so may we now, as we enter into God's word, uh, live in that truth as we, um, we sit under the authority of God's word. We want to hear from what he has to say from us. Uh, let me just pray for us real quick. Heavenly Father, today is your day. You have made this day. You have declared this day to be holy because today is another day that we have an opportunity to be able to come to you with our praises, but also our groanings and our longings, our hurts. 
And God, there is much opportunity in the midst of all of this for your spirit to work. And I pray that you would work in and through us today. That your words would reign true today. God, my words have no authority or weight to bring life or death. I cannot awaken hearts. I cannot convict. Oh, but God, you can. And I pray that you would by the power of your word this morning through your spirit and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so we're in a, a study of Ecclesiastes, making sense in this world that um, oftentimes doesn't make sense. And so Ecclesiastes kind of helps us do this. And, um, and it's not always easy to see how. Um, it's hard even to create a sermon with a single um, theme, a single thread, um, because the author, the preacher, Solomon, doesn't create his arguments with this kind of linear type of, um, of movement, but often he gives us proverbs and anecdotes, and those meanings can sometimes elude us, and chapter 4 is no different from this, um, but I'm going to try really hard this morning to create this singular thread, um, singular theme through these verses that we just read this, um, this morning. I like how David Gibson did this and his take on the passage, how he relates it to living for something greater than ourselves, how we live in this me-centered culture, not for ourselves, but for others. And so the title of this sermon this morning is How to Live for Others, Living for Others in a Me-Centered Culture. The question that we must ask is the question that the man in verse 8 failed to ask himself In verse 8, he says, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? That's the question for all of us this morning. For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of all pleasure? All of us are trying to figure out where we're going in life. Some of us may ponder that question um, more than others. We may not even really think about that very much. But the reality is that we all live within that question. Where am I going in life? And... uh, We're all making carefully calculated decisions based upon our feelings. You know, are we happy? Are we sad? Are we stressed out? Are we relaxed? Are we focused, maybe disoriented, lazy, or feeling determined? And we're making decisions based upon those feelings. As Gibson writes, what all of these feelings have in common is an acute awareness of me. You see, you're natural self, there's nothing your natural self is more acutely aware of than yourself. That's just how we are wired. But the preacher offers us this new question in this passage. So the author, he he gives us this question, he kind of proposes it, not explicitly, but this is where we want to try to tie this thread. And And it's not where am I going, but where are we going? Where are we going? And The preacher exemplifies this in the first three verses, verses one through three. He uh, shows us that this world is so evil, oppression is so bad, that it would be better to be dead and better yet not to even be born at all. And you say, okay, hold on. You lost me there, Josiah. How does that exemplify how to live for others? I mean, at first reading, his perspective is just terrible, and drab. But I believe with an honest approach this morning to these verses, to what he says, I think all of us could say that we at some point or another have felt similar, a similar feeling about life. 
You know, um, there's, there, sometimes life is joyful. Sometimes it's really hard. And in the midst of hardship, sometimes it's easy enough to just have, to create like a perspective shift, right? To see how, wow, like in the grand scheme of things, this really isn't that bad. That kind of helps us keep going forward. But still, there's other times where there's just absolutely no answer to why the world is as dark as it is. Sometimes there's just, reality is there's just moments where there's no answer to life. And so I think what we can learn from this is that as Christians, we must be honest about the way the world is. That it's okay to be honest. You know, if you, you think of a lot of the, the shootings that have happened, the school shootings, uh, immediately I think of Sandy Hook um, in an elementary school where 20 elementary students were gunned down. First graders. That a person saw fit to, to walk in and just gun down. First graders, along with eight other adults. I mean, we look at that and we're like, what in the world? I mean, the innocence and life that is taken in that moment. I think of another moment of uh, a few years ago, a boy named Gabriel Tay. He was eight years old, and I remember waking up early one morning, and, um, and I saw this headline of Gabriel, and he, uh, he had been bullied a lot at school, and one day in particular, he uh, was bullied, not just verbally, but physically, and he was thrown into the wall of a bathroom, knocked unconscious uh, for a good period of time. Um, the faculty called the mom, the mom came, and the boy really didn't allude to any of this. He didn't, you know, um, fess up to any of this. It wasn't until after they found out. Um, so the, but the mom took the boy home, thinking that he just fainted, um, later that evening, she walked into his bedroom and him hanging from his, his bunk bed from a necktie. And I'm like, God. And I found myself this morning, that morning, a few years ago, just weeping. And I just couldn't, I couldn't bring any answers. I couldn't give any reasons for how this could happen. Why would this happen? It doesn't make any sense, Lord. And I bring all this up because I think we can be in the church sometimes. We can be so concerned about having an answer. And even to the extent of being so theologically correct in our response to others' pain that we fail to experience that pain for ourselves. That we can even cross our arms maybe and say, well, that's just the, world, the way the world is. It's just how it is. Let me tell you, church, this isn't love for others. This is not what Christ did. But he stepped into pain. He allowed himself to feel pain. He did not remove himself from it. David Gibson writes, as believers, we must never be trite and simplistic when relating the good news of Christ to a world in pain. We must never simplify things. But sometimes there's just no answers. And it's okay to be honest about that. That's what the preacher shows us. The fact of the matter is, we're just not used to looking very long and hard at how life really is, are we? We live in a world of comic relief. You know, maybe there's brief moments of pain, but we know that that will pass quickly for something more lighthearted because we can turn the station or we can scroll to the next video on our feed 
and we pay for laughter to kind of subside and to help our suffering. And then once again, David Gibson writes this, but if there really wasn't anywhere to avert our eyes, maybe we would find ourselves thinking it's a blessing to have no idea what evil is in the first place. Perhaps we would count the unborn among the most fortunate people in the world. If we really didn't have anywhere that we could avert our eyes to. This is what the preacher shows us. There's an honesty at stake here. And we must as Christians step into an honest fear of honest sphere of how to relate to the world and how to present the good news to the world. There is good news. As we walk through Ecclesiastes, we must remember one thing in particular that all of this oppression, all toil, all struggle that we feel and experience on earth today is meaningless unless there is a heaven. Unless there is a hope. If there is no hope, then yes, this is meaningless. That we are to be reviled, to despise, to be looked down more than anybody else because we're claiming something that isn't true. If Christ didn't rise and he's not in heaven and waiting for us to come home to him, then this is meaningless. This is hopeless. But Paul tells us this, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. That's our hope. And then in her song title, All is Vanity, songwriter Carolyn Cobb, I love this song. Um, she helps us understand how this, is, how this happens in and, um, and these very simple but poignant words. She says, if there's restlessness, there must be rest. If there's hunger, there must be fullness. If we experience these things now, there must be a completion. There must be a wholeness. There must be a fulfillment. And so we point to that day. We can be honest about the world because we know it's pointing to something meaningful. And because of this, we can subject ourselves to pain. We can jump into the skin of somebody else. We can feel what they feel without any pretense or reservation. And this is the road to heaven that Jesus has paved for his church. This is the road he's paid for us. And this is the road that the preacher takes us down in this passage. But not all roads lead to the same place. There's certainly the ability to go the wrong way. If you ever try to drive a car, then you know that this is true. You can't jump in your car and just expect to end up at the destination that you want to go to if you have no idea how to get there, right? You need a direction. You need a map. You need a course. So the preacher gives us this really, I believe, insightful observation to help us determine if we're going the right way. In verse four, he says, all toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Think about that for a second. All toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. I, I love this. I think it's so insightful for us because the Hebrew word, for evil here, or for envy, I'm sorry, can be used in a positive or negative sense, meaning that we can be positively motivated or negatively motivated based upon our interactions with others. This is such an easy trap for everyone to fall into. We, when we live our lives with a where am I going opposed to where are we going, where am I going, and then everything and everyone becomes either obstacles or commodities for our success. Think about that. If, if all of our lives are just wrapped up in where am I going in life, 
Where's my life leading me? Then everyone around me is either a commodity to that success or an obstacle to get around. And you can't love people when they're that way. Not the way Christ has loved you to, called you to love them. Because they're a means to an end. This isn't learned behavior either. Hearts are naturally wired this way. I mean, my, my kids, I'm just like, golly, like, give it up, man. Like, just share your toys, you know? <laughs> and like Desmond, his whole like, happiness is just wrapped up in whether he can have this toy or not. That Elliot's going to give it to him. And I'm like, man, she's not an obstacle to your joy. Like, enjoy her. She's your little sister, right? And he's five, you know, so it takes time. But man, we're naturally wired this way. We can often feel discouraged. This is how it plays out. We often feel discouraged or even unnoticed based, you know, with someone else's success. Even if we shake their hands and, and smile and congratulate them, we can feel a little bit less worthy and um, unnoticed because of someone else's success. And at the same time, we can tell someone how sorry we are for their failure or their loss, but feel better about ourselves because we're just glad that wasn't us. Right? I mean, and this, this is the worst type of stuff. This is terrible, right? We all can agree that, like, that's, that's terrible, But all of us are guilty of that on some level at some point in time. All of us are. And if we don't keep a close watch on our motives and where those motives originate, um, then we tend to fall on this road that Christ has called us down to of living for others. We tend to fall into two ditches on either side of this road. And I want to give those to us. So the first one is laziness that that, um, Solomon writes here in verse 5. Laziness. Verse five, he says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now, what does that mean? Obviously, we, you know, lazy people aren't literally consuming their own bodies. But there is a sense of like destroying yourself in laziness. We all know that there can be a point, we've all seen it where so, like there's a corrosion that happens when you kind of give yourself to just yourself. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, whatever feels good, and I'm just, I'm not going to care about anything else. And there's kind of a corrosion, a consuming of yourself, eating yourself away to the point where even all self-respect is gone, right? Um, we destroy ourselves. Have you guys seen the movie Endgame? So um, if you haven't, you know, go see it, I guess. I'm not really, you know, condoning or anything, but um, check out, so this guy, um, this is the mighty Thor for us, um, and he's at a point where he has just lost all self-respect, he's just completely um, g- giving himself to just whatever feels good in the moment, right, and he's lost touch with everything, and this guy cannot help anyone. He, he can't help anyone in this state of, right? I mean, I wouldn't call on him at least for help, right? And I guess that's a spoiler. Sorry if you haven't seen it, but uh, it's all right. It's not that good of a movie anyways. Um, the, the point is that really laziness in the end is, is a hate for other people because you have nothing to offer them. You can't help people. You're hating your neighbor because you can't help your neighbor. 
And so if laziness is on one side, the other thing is busyness. In verse 6, he tells us this, that better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. If laziness is destroying your life, then I would call busyness wasting your life. That we're just, we hate others because we're too busy for other people. We demonstrate hate for other people because we have no time to give other people. And we're, I mean, this kind of manic busyness is just an epidemic in our culture. I mean, and, and even in the church. I mean, it's just, it's, it's the next thing after the next thing. It's whatever's around the corner, you know, whatever my next job is, my next degree, my next promotion, my next car, you know, the next house, the next stage of life, you know, it's just the next, the next, the next, the things that we're striving towards to get busier and busier and busier so that we can attain those things. And it just results in this busyness that we have, uh, we're left with no time for anyone else. You know, I think about um, in my life how this plays out is right now I'm just always looking and I find myself catching myself just always looking for the next stage of life for my kids, right? Like, I just can't wait for the day until my house is just full of these rational, reasonable conversations and I'm not worrying about what, you know, who has the toy first, you know, or these tantrums and so on and so forth. But like, and, and people say it all the time, like these are the best years of your life. These are the best years of your life and I have to remind myself that that is true. And and embrace these times, embrace these moments, embrace these years, and not just be looking for the next thing. We can drive from one ditch to the next, but there's a middle road that we're all called to. And this is characterized in this. The road paved by Christ is marked by this characteristic, contentment. Contentment. G.K. Chesterton says that there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more, the other is to desire less. It's good. There's two ways to have enough. You can accumulate more things or you can just desire less. And Paul in Philippians, he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. Amen. But do we believe it? That you can, through Christ, do all things, including just be content. Because we read this passage in better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil, but man, the two hands full of something sounds way better than just one hand full, Right? And that, that's just kind of how we're trained to think, though, right? I mean, the Escalade is better than the Escort. The mansion is definitely better than the shack. The big business is better than a small business, or the big ministry, the big congregation is better than a small congregation. Having two hands full, though, does not mean that the things in our hands are substantive. And what the preacher is saying is that it's just vapor you're holding on to. It's nothing, it's not going to do anything for you. And on, top, and on top of that, think about this. You might have two hands full of something. It might not do anything for you. But you ha- also have no hand for anyone else. But one hand full means you have less for yourself. But you have another hand for someone else. That's good. 
You might only have one handful, but you have another hand for someone else. And the reason many of you can't give more of yourself is not because you lack anything, but it's because you have too much. Both your hands are full, and you have no hand for anyone else. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says this to us, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, he asks a question to this passage and he says, when is the last time someone asked you for the reason for the hope that is in you? That's convicting. That's convicting. That's convicting me all week long. It's like, and it's just been wrestling with this. Why aren't people asking me for the hope that is in me? Could it be this? That the things I hope in and hope for look a lot like the things that everyone else hopes for and looks for in life. There's really not much difference. Piper would call this wasting your life. Solomon would call it chasing after the wind. Jesus calls it being lost. Lost in life. And so in the last remaining verses here, I want us to see this. and Seeing our life as a journey on this road. Um, when I was 21, I took a road trip from Northern California uh, down the coast and then all the way to Florida. And it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I went on with two of my really close friends and uh, we stopped at as many places as we could. Um, I, we took my 91 Mazda Navajo. If you don't know what that is, it's basically a Ford Explorer, but better. And <laughs> AC went out in the middle of Texas in you know the heat of June. And we had to drive all the way to Florida through the Louisiana Bayou, just nasty air. Like, you know, it was just so awesome. Like, so many great experiences. And I mean it. Like, I look back on that and, like, I loved that experience with my friends. I loved it. And even in the midst of it, there was um, a moment where things got really contentious with me and my friend and we just blew up on each other. Like I just let her have it. And like she was in tears and I just didn't want to talk to her. But yeah, we couldn't escape from each other because we were in the same car the whole rest of the way. Um, and through that, you know, we, we, we reconciled, we forgave each other and it was like a weld, you know, for our relationship. It really um, brought us closer together. And, um, and I bring up that to say like, I mean, you can, like, I could, I could have done that trip by myself. I probably would have hated the whole experience with no AC because I can't look back and enjoy it with anybody. And we couldn't have laughed about it in the minute. Like, I would have just been cursing the whole way. Um, and I wouldn't have grown at all. My friend wouldn't have grown in that. If you choose to live life by yourself, you can guarantee one thing, you will get yourself. And that's it. So the question is, is life by yourself fulfilling? The preacher's um, anecdotal reference to a person here um, who sought after life of self-fulfillment shows us that, we, that he, he never actually finds it in, in verse 7 and 8 there. That he is digging a hole that never ends, he's drinking a cup that never quenches his thirst, that he's um, set himself on a project of fulfillment Um, that has so consumed his life that he never stops to even ask himself, for whom am I doing all this anyways? Have any of you found yourselves there before? Just like, who who am I doing this for? Like, does anybody notice? Like, 
The irony here in the passage is that the toiling and the accumulation actually results in deprivation. Like, what does he say? He says, um, for whom am I toiling, in verse 8, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Whom am I toiling and so depriving myself of pleasure? That the working hard and the busyness and maybe even laziness, whatever the case may be, like, like I'm depriving myself of something. The pleasure that you and I seek in wealth, whether that's monetarily, whether that's in things, whether that's wealth of knowledge or experiences, will be the very pleasure that you and I deprive ourselves of um, if we seek these things for ourselves alone. God has given us so many good gifts to enjoy, but one that we neglect so often and so easily is this gift of companionship. God has made us to have relationship with each other, to have companionship. From the very beginning, God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. So he gave man a companion. We're created for relationship, and yet we often neglect others for the sake of our own agendas. The preacher, though, flips the script now, and by saying that less of something is not always better. Right? So remember you know, what he was saying earlier, about having one handful is, is better than two hands full, but less of something is not always better as long as that the right thing is being replaced in there. So better, more, more of the right thing is good. And so uh, where does fellowship need to increase in your life? Where does fellowship with others need to increase in your life? Maybe you're an introvert. I am naturally an introvert. I call myself a learned extrovert. Um, because I've, I've learned and I'm learning the benefits of interacting with other people and giving myself my time, my energy to other people. Like there's something that God has done in that from the very beginning that is good for us. And may, maybe you need to step, maybe you find yourself, you're just like, I don't like hanging around other people. How can you move from that into a space where you actually give yourself to somebody else, your time and your energy, and you allow yourself to feel what other people are feeling, to step into their story a little bit, to come alongside them as a companion. Maybe you're an extrovert and you just command the conversation all day long, right? How can you step back and allow somebody else to flourish in the conversation, to hear from them, to learn from them? This is really a gift that God has given us. And we, uh, we see it play out here that, again, he's using this kind of better than example, this, uh, this proverb of two are better than one, three, a three-fold uh, cord is not quickly broken, um, basically saying, you know, two is better than one, three is better than two. I think you could probably keep going, and four is better than three, five is better than four. You know, there's no end to this. More of the right thing is good. Philippians 2, one through three. Um, I'm gonna read this, turn there real quick. Philippians 2, 1 through 3 says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any, um, I lost my place, any participa- participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full, of cor- full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
count others more significant than even yourselves. Solomon ends with the story of two young guys and a king. Uh, The first uh, youth is a king himself before he's crowned, and the second is his successor. And both of these young guys, they come from poverty, um, but they have wisdom, and which leads them to the throne. But the king becomes closed-minded in his old age and therefore foolish. He has accomplished many things. He's allowed it to fill him with pride. And he shut himself off from others by rejecting their counsel. And in doing so, he hates them. He cannot feel their pain because he's so removed from their poverty. He cannot listen to them because he is above them and they are beneath him. But before you and I cast stones the king this morning. Maybe make sure that we're not the king. Make sure that you're not the king in the story. Jesus, he, uh, on his last journey to Jerusalem, he, uh, there's a story in Luke 19. And if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Luke 19. And we're going to read the story of Zacchaeus together. Says he entered Jericho, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus, excuse me. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As a chief tax collector, um, Zacchaeus was despised among his people um, because he was a traitor. You know, basically he was a Jew and he had pledged allegiance to Rome and worked in what was called tax farming where Rome would um, hire him to collect taxes from the Jews, and then he would kind of skim some off the top for himself. At least that was the common practice of a tax collector at the time. Um, But as much as he had turned his back on his people, his people also turned their back on him. In this very moment where Jesus looks up to him and says, and sees sees this man and and says, uh, Zacchaeus, come down today. I'm coming to your house. You know, they all grumble themselves. I'm like, him? You know, like, they just as much turn their back on him. Zacchaeus' greed was a thing that made him foolish, but the Jews' self-righteousness was theirs. But here's the thing, neither was too great a foolishness for Jesus. Neither was too great for Jesus. The good news for us this morning is that anyone who wishes to see Jesus will see Jesus. Anyone who wants to see him will see him. 
do you want to see him? Maybe you've come in here and you've came to see who this Jesus was. Let me assuredly tell you, that if you seek, you will find. Maybe you're here today and you just feel riddled with guilt upon, maybe you feel like the king. You know, maybe you would say that I'm just too busy. I'm, I've been too busy with my life. I've been too lazy with my life. I've squandered life. Maybe you have demonstrated foolishness and closed-mindedness by rejecting others. Maybe you have given yourself to only yourself. And if that's you today, then let me tell you this, that Jesus is seeking out those who want to see him. And that there is no sin, no guilt, no shame that is too great for him. And that he will come in to your house if you receive him gladly. That salvation can come to your house. That salvation can come to your home. And so the greatest way and clearest way for us to see Christ is through the cross. We read in Philippians 2 a second ago and we finish here with these words and continuing in in Philippians 2 in verse 5 he says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ. Church, this is yours in Christ. It is yours in Christ. It's not to, to gain or anything. It, it's yours. Christ has given it to you. But have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ who through, though he was in the form of God he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're going to come to the communion table here now, and, uh, and we're going to receive again this gift that Christ has given us through his own self, that he paved the way, living for others, and what that looks like. He showed us that self-sacrifice and self-denial is better than gaining for yourself. And here's what we can believe in this. That if you do feel guilty and you do feel riddled with this, that you can have joy in knowing that there is nothing that you can do or, or have done or will ever do to bring you to this table this morning, but it's only because of Christ. It's only because of what he has done that we can come to the table and receive him. So will you receive him gladly this morning? Stand to your feet with me as we prepare to take communion. If you're a guest with us, then uh, we're so happy that you're here and as you're welcome to the table as long as you don't have to be a part of this church, as long as you're part of a church, a Bible-believing evangelical church, and you confessed with your heart and your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe fully that this is true, then come and receive again this sacrifice that Jesus has prepared for you.
And if you're here this morning and you're gonna say, man, I'm, I'm seeking, I'm searching, but man, I'm not ready to, to make that kind of um, proclamation, then we would ask you just to not participate in this communion time, but for those who have, come and receive again. And may the, um, the comfort, the joy of what Christ has done for you lead you to gladness, lead you to celebration, and lead you from yourself to others. So Spirit of God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your um, continual conviction and your comfort even, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would now draw us nearer to your throne. You would draw us from ourselves and you would draw us close to you. You would draw us out, Lord. Lord, as a song that in pre-service prayer this morning was playing in the words to say, you liberate me. You liberate me from the chaos in my own mind. God, there is chaos happening all the time in our, in our minds. And when there's a struggle, there's a struggle to, to discern our motives and to discern our hearts and what we're doing and why we're doing it. But Spirit of God, would you illuminate today? Would you cause greater light to be shine? Help us to see. Help us to see clearly. You liberate us from the chains. You liberate us from even our own chaos. And you give us life in Christ's name. Amen. Come, let's take communion together this morning, church.